Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer introduces a new series called Work Out Your Faith. We are in the new year now, and like many people, there seems to be a desire to improve on something for the new year. For many, it's getting into better physical shape. To achieve that goal, there has to be an order and dedication of faithfulness to a workout. This week, we begin our workout in Hebrews 12. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. No pain, no gain. We're sort of starting a new series and sort of just continuing through Hebrews, but we're starting a section. You remember we just studied Hebrews chapter 11. We defined what faith is. We looked at many Old Testament examples of faith and what it looked like, Hebrews 12, 1, and joined us, said, why don't you run by faith? It's time for you to live out your faith. And the rest of Hebrews chapter, or the rest of the book of Hebrews, rather, is going to reveal to us how we work out our faith, that God has not called us just to come to church as a five-year-old, pray a prayer of faith, recite some Christian mantra, hallelujah, I'm going to heaven when I die, but then we just continue to remain our lives much the way that it was and much the way that the rest of the world lives their lives. That God has called us to take that faith that God has planted as a seed with that new life that we have, the word of God in our heart, and we are to act on that. We are to live obediently to that faith, to live it out, to do something with our faith, that true faith will actually do something. So work out your faith. Many of us we, uh, for the New Year's, you've got resolutions. You've at least, and even if you don't say you have resolutions, because you know you always go back on them anyhow, and you've decided I'm not going to make a resolution, when then you discover that that itself is a resolution not to make a resolution. And then, but a lot of us, we have some desires to get physically healthy, and a lot of times that is our New Year's resolution, because we feel it in our bodies, don't we? As we age, some of us, we, we don't get out of chairs the same way that we used to. We growl like Chewbacca getting up out of a chair. We never had to do that before. And so we start going, you know what, maybe I ought to listen to my doctor. Maybe that person has, you know, a little bit of knowledge, and I should maybe work it out. And so for your Christmas present, you bought yourself a very expensive clothing rack that we like to call the treadmill. Yeah, that's what they all become after about six, eight months. But uh, none of us much enjoy that. Uh, we mean well. And the reason we buy those things is because we see value in, in being able to walk and being able to reach the top shelf, be able to stretch, to, to just be able to live life. And so we value our bodies. And what I'd like you to consider doing too is not just make resolutions to have a physically healthy life, but to have a spiritually healthy life. Are we going to be more mature in Christ in 2024 than we were in 2023? That should be the the trajectory of all believers, that we don't look fondly back at a time in our life when we used to follow Jesus, when we used to be faithful to church, when we used to be active in ministry, when I used to teach classes, when I used to lead ministries, it should be something that we continue to grow and mature. That's going to be a, a, a theme throughout Hebrews, and we're going to, even in Hebrews 5, by this time you ought to be teachers. There's a sense in which we should always be growing and maturing into what God desires us to be. And so we are to work out our faith. That concept is very biblical. It's, you find it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So the context here is obedience and working out your faith. And then he'll say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That work it out isn't like work out a math problem, work out long division. 
It isn't like figure your faith out. It is you have faith. God has placed this seed within you. God gave you a treadmill. Now get on it. You know, let's, let's work this faith out. Let's do something with this faith that we purport to have. And so Hebrews here, we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 12. You already understand the context of it. He's been talking about faith, what it is, how people have lived it out. He's called us to run the race of faith. And then he shows us what that looks like. He recognizes that running a race is going to make you tired at times. You're going to get injured at times. There's going to be times where you start to ponder, is this even worth running this race at all? I think that's where the Hebrews are at, because if you scan down in Hebrews chapter 12, and you get down to verse 12, it'll say, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Okay, he's not talking about old age here. He's talking about somebody who's running a race. At times, we lived out the Christian life, and we get tired. And we start to wonder, is this really worth it? You know, the idea is, a, this is a picture of a runner. Remember Hebrews 12, we're running a race? And then at some point in time, they just, they get weak knees and they start to get droopy because when you run a race for a while, you hit that wall and you start to ask yourself, should I even be running this? Do I need that medal at the end of this marathon? I mean, is it worth it so I can hang it on my wall and tell my friends about it? And you start thinking, you know, I'd love to be standing where that guy is at the table full of Twinkies and, you know, water bottles. I'd much rather just hand out water to somebody else running the race. And that's where the Hebrews were right now. Is it worth running this race? These are people who have worked hard for Jesus. These are people who have suffered for Jesus, and they're just exhausted. Maybe that's where you find yourself at the first of the year, January, and you're already tired. First month out of the year, and you're already worn out. Hebrews 12.3 then says, consider him. When you're tired, when you're exhausted, if you're wondering if this Christian life is really worth it, think about Jesus. Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus didn't have to come to earth except for the fact that it was part of God's sovereign plan. This is something that Jesus willingly did for us. Jesus willingly went to the cross. Jesus willingly went with the soldiers. Remember, you know, are you him? I am he, you know, I am. And they, all the soldiers fall down. It's evidence that Jesus went willingly with the soldiers. He willingly died on the cross. He willingly gave up his spirit. He didn't have to do this. And yet Jesus here says, consider him and how he endured from sinners such hostility that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, Jesus, who is God's own son, he didn't get out of this life unscathed. Why should we? We're not going to get through the Christian life without any kind of pain. There is pain in everything that is worth doing, in, in any kind of growth. There, we have a term called growing pains. We even have that phrase, no pain, no gain, right? You, you've heard that. I, I realize that causes some people to groan, you, you weightlifters. But uh, I remember hearing that back in the, you know, the 80s. I'm going to school, and we're, all, the, all the guys, every once, every once in a while, the gym teacher would have us go into the weight room. It was very unfamiliar territory to me. You can always tell who belongs in a weight room and who's really just investigating it. You ever notice? We'd go into the weight room, and uh, there's guys like me who are just kind of wandering around going, what are these machines? And there's others, guys, and they're like, oh, I've been here before, you know, for football practice. And they'll get in there, and they'll just immediately start pushing weights up, you know, and their buddies spotting them, and they're cheering them on. Come on, go, you know, and they're shouting those phrases from the 80s. Feel the burn, you know, no pain, no gain. And I laugh now because I don't know if at the time these varsity football players realized that those phrases came from a Jane Fonda aerobic workout video in the 80s. Remember the leg warmers? In, in like the, the neon spandex. Jane Fonda came up with those terms, you know, and what she was trying to do is she's got a bunch of out of shape, middle-aged moms who are tired and they want to get back into shape, 
you know, get back into the, the, the bond you had before the baby. And so she, Jane Fonda is encouraging the women, keep going. I realize you haven't exercised in five years, but this is going to hurt you. But it's good. And so Jane Fonda's out there, feel the burn, no pain, no gain. And so she's trying to encourage them that there is pain in what you're doing right now. And you may question whether or not it's worth it for me to be doing all these stretches and motions and jumping jacks and things. But keep going because on the other side, you're going to be healthier for it. I think to a degree, that's kind of what what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us here in chapter 12, that there's going to be pain in your Christian experience. Now, we don't like that. There's none of us who enjoy pain. There's none of us going to the library going, do you have a book on how to enjoy the pain of God? You know, we're not asking for that. It's not a New York Times bestseller. None of us volunteer for that kind of pain, but it's still there. And, there, and that the, the message of Hebrews is there's going to be pain in your Christian experience, but endure it because on the other side of that pain, God is doing something with that because we serve a sovereign God. And we love God being sovereign when things are bad for us because then we know that God has a backstop on our pain and that that pain is all subject to God and his sovereignty. Okay, so if we serve a sovereign God who is fully and completely in control of all things, who clothes the grass of the field and the birds of the air, feeds them, and who, who says that the very hairs of our head are numbered, it's a prayer request for some of you in here, I can see. Okay, God is in control of all these aspects of our life. So when we experience pain, it's not that God goes, whoa, whoa, slept in on that one. You know, what's happening to Pat over here? We can trust him with that pain. And so Hebrews 11 indicates that it is, uh, we, we read that it, it, God's will for us is to live by faith. In fact, 11.6 says, without faith, can we please God? We cannot. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so when we choose not to live by faith, and some of us do that, we know how to live by faith. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't always do what we know we're supposed to do. And there are times that God will use pain to get our attention. You know, it was C.S. Lewis who wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. He says, it is his megaphone to a deaf world. That there are times that we can just get so busy with life, we're working hard, we're putting more money into our 401k, you know, we're, we're paying off Christmas debt. <laughs> we're, doing, we're just busy doing our things. We're going to doctor's visits, we're going to recitals and activities and football games. And pretty soon, that's all we can think that life is about, is just existing and maintaining this sack of chemicals until it gives up. Life, there's more to life to that, and God uses pain to get our attention, to tell us to, uh, that there's something that God wants us to learn from this. As a believer, we know that all of God's pain has a purpose, and all of our pain and even the discipline of God is motivated, number one, is motivated by love. He says in verse 3, uh, we talked about already, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you not grow weary nor faint-hearted. Verse 3 reminds us that, you know, Father loved the Son clearly, but did Jesus get through life without going through pain? He did not. In fact, God, even though he dearly loved his Son, allowed him to endure more suffering than any of us will ever experience in our lifetime. Did God love Jesus then? He did, and yet he allowed him to endure suffering because there is a purpose behind this. Consider Jesus. You're not so weird that you are a Christian and you're following God and you're going through suffering. You're not weird. Jesus went through it. Consider him. 
Remember that suffering at times can be disciplinary, but also remember that not all suffering is, is for discipline. Sometimes suffering it has another purpose. It may have be pruning in our life, that God is clipping away things from our life that a, that a normal grapevine, if just left to itself and untended, will just continue to run out shoots and runners and just go and go and go and go and go and go and spread itself as far and wide as it possibly can, but it won't bear much fruit. And so what does the vine grower have to do? Sometimes just through pain, he has to clip off some of these things, keep us from going out and just getting involved in everything in a shallow way and to really grow deep and bear fruit. That's God's intention for us. That's the pruning of God. There are times that we just suffer simply because we're following him, right? 2 Timothy 3.12, what does it say? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will get rich. Are you reading, your Bible? Are you reading the same Bible translation I am? This is the Creflo A. Dollar Bible, evidently. No, this is, no, this is the, this Bible says we'll suffer persecution. Everyone who desired to live a godly life, they're gonna experience that. There's gonna be pain in your life. In fact, John 15, 20, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and did they persecute Jesus? They did. He says, if they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. If you represent me, they're gonna hate you as much as they did me. So to some degree, suffering is normal in that way. And then verse four even indicates in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so here in verse four, it indicates that, there is a, that we are struggling in life, that the Christian life is a struggle. It's not meant to be easy, that as long as you receive Jesus into your heart, that now your life is just gonna be an easy paved highway. Jesus didn't describe it that way. He described our life as a narrow gate and difficult is the way and there's few that find it. So I think it's unrealistic as a Christian that we think that somehow we're gonna find the path that leads to life, but it feels like a highway. So in this, this struggle of sin, is it the sin that is within ourselves or is it the, the sin of others? I think contextually both are in mind because if we look at verse one here, he talks about us laying aside the sin which clings to us so closely. You know, part of an evidence that you're a true believer is that as soon as you become a believer, you don't enjoy sin the way that you used to. Now you have a spirit and a flesh that are warring against each other. You have a spirit, this inner man that has been made, that has been renewed in Christ, possesses the life of God. It causes you to long for spiritual things, causes you to long for holiness, but we still got this old body. And this old body still likes to sleep in. It doesn't like to work out. Uh, it enjoys gratifying itself. Go ahead, have the rest of that you know, tub of ice cream. Nobody will notice. Go ahead and, and just, you know, say that thing about somebody else. They have it coming. And so we have this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5, 17 says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary to one another to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. And what we want to do is implied is to live a holy life. That's what believers really want. Deep down in their heart, there's a longing for holiness but our flesh keeps battling us. It battles for control. But we're also opposed by the sins of others against us. I think that's absolutely in mind because if you look at verse three, he talked uh, to us about considering Jesus who suffered at the hands of sinful men who wounded him. And so there's this struggle that believers are in. He's letting us know we're behind enemy lines here. And there's going to be a struggle against sin. That struggles within your own life as you're struggling against sin. And you're gonna struggle against the sin that is resonant in the world that is around us as it persecutes us, as it oppresses us for being Christian. And Jesus let us know this is normal. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you. 
It's one of the indicators that you're either living a worldly life or you're unsaved is when everybody in the world speaks well of you. That's what we all want. We want everybody to like us. But Jesus says, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. They either don't know who you are or maybe you're not converted. Okay, so this world is hostile to us. And yet in this struggling against sin, he reminds us that they have not yet paid the ultimate price. He says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I want you to notice he, he says, not yet. Did Jewish Christians pay the ultimate price for following Jesus? Read church history. We've, as Christians, our brethren have been burned at the stake. We've been drawn and quartered. We've been put in a hollow log and sawn in two. Uh, we've been soaked in wax and lit on fire to, you know, for Nero's garden parties. We've been fed to lions. And even today, you say, well, that happened a long time ago. You know, right now, there is more martyrdom in the world of Christians than there has ever been at any other point in time in history. The problem with us is we live in Kentucky here and we don't feel it the way the rest of the world does until we start visiting the rest of the world and we start meeting brothers and sisters who have been to jail, who've been beaten for their faith. But I want you to see here as he says, not yet. In other words, you've gone through a certain measure of suffering and you're already tired. He says, you've not yet resisted to the shedding of blood, but some of you will. God is slowly stacking some weight on them to make them stronger so that they can handle glorifying God in those most difficult hours. And that's how God does with us, with pain. He doesn't immediately, it's, it's sort of like weightlifting. If you've ever lifted weights, clearly I've not done it consistently, but there was a period in time where I was insane and I, was, I had a roommate in Bible college whose name was Eric and he lifted weights and he came to Bible college and brought in a weight bench like it was a piece of furniture. Just threw it right out there in the front room. You got the couch, you got the refrigerator, you got the weight bench. And he would always be out there. And this brother was pushing up like 400 pounds on the weight bench, which if you're not lifting any weights, that's a good chunk of weight. You know, the rest of us Bible college guys coming in, we're like, what is this? <laughs> we're looking at it, you know, like monkeys coming across a car in the jungle. And we get on there and we were kind of insulted because this brother's stacking up like Schwarzenegger style weights on the side. And we get down there like, let me see what I can do. Let me see how much I can push up. I wonder how close to 400 I'll get. And he would always start us out this way. He'd like, let's start you with just the bar. And he would, the bar is 45 pounds. And he'd say, just start with the bar. And we'd push that up a few times. One of the brothers was struggling to get that guy up. And, and then he'd start stacking on weight. And then pretty soon what we found is, we wanted to be strong like Eric was. And so Eric kept encouraging us. I know it's hurting. You're hurting right now. And tomorrow you're not going to be able to move your arms very well, but stay with it. And we did. And, and I worked, I, I lifted, I benched for probably about four months and my, my bench went up by probably 50 or 60 pounds, but it didn't happen overnight. Slowly, this brother would stack on weight and I would hurt myself to the point where I'm like, I literally can't do anymore. But then after a while, guess what I found out? I was stronger. And then the next time I was like, no, I think I can handle a little bit more. And so I start to push that weight up. And then after a few weeks, I'm like, I think I can put on even more weight. And this is what he does. He keeps stacking on the plates. And his, his purpose in that was not because he hated Bible college students. He didn't hate us as classmates. He actually wanted us to be strong like he was strong. And he was encouraging us, endure this pain, and I'm going to keep stacking a little more weight so you can handle more. And this is what God is doing with us in life. We've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, but there may come a time when God may require that of us. I know as Americans, we don't even like to think that way. I brought that up once at a church I was preaching at when, I, when we were traveling as missionaries. And I brought that up, and it just freaked out this one girl. She's like, do you really think persecution will ever come to America like that? I said, we need to expect it. 
And so whatever, in, whatever God is calling you to endure today, friends, uh, with all the love in my heart, I want to tell you, endure it well because God is going to stack on weight because his intention is to make us strong to the point where we can endure such things for him. If you were called to die for Christ today, do you really think in your, in your heart of hearts, do you think that you could do it? If somebody put a gun to your head and said, you follow Jesus or you reject Jesus, you follow Jesus, you know, I'm going to end your life right here. Could you make that call? For some of us, absolutely not. We haven't, we're not to the place where we have yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We're not ready for that yet. But God is using your pain right now to stack on weight to make you stronger to get you to the place where you can be. I think that's what was in mind in James <clears throat> chapter 1 and verse 2 to 3. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces something. What is it? Steadfastness, your ability to remain up under a difficulty without bailing on it. You know, that you, it doesn't change who you are, that you can be suffering and going through a hard time and it doesn't change you. By the way, who you are in suffering is who you are. A lot of times we go through suffering and we lash out at people, we get nasty with people, get angry, say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then we give an excuse like, I'm just going through a bad day, as if that excuses. Like, I'm really not this person. I'm really a good person, but when I'm under suffering, I become this bad person. It's the, it's the circumstance's fault. Can I tell you, friends, you are who you are under suffering and no more. When you're only a good person, you're only a kind person, when you're only a faithful person, when God is giving you what you want, Jesus would even say, when you love those that love you, what benefit is there in that? How can you boast in the maturity of your faith? True Christian maturity is not that you're here at church when times are good. True Christian maturity is when you're here when times are bad. You got diagnosed with cancer and you're still here. You, you, your, your wife walked out on you and you keep teaching your Sunday school. Is that even humanly possible? To be going through suffering in times of difficulty and pain and yet it doesn't change your, your worship with God? You still worship God, you still give to God, you still serve God, you're still kind to other people, even though you're hurting. I can, I'm not gonna do it, but I could point out several of you in this congregation right now who are suffering and hurting and even facing life-threatening illnesses, and yet those are some of the sweetest people we have here. What do we call that? That is steadfastness. How did they get that way? Were they just born that way? God has slowly stacked weight on us, and if we allow him to do his perfect work within us, we will learn to endure pain and not let it change who we are. It'll produce a steadfast spirit. I will remain up under that pressure and I will stay faithful to God no matter what comes to me. That my circumstances don't change me. They simply reveal what's truly on the inside, like peeling away the layers of that onion. I get to see what's really on the inside of me through pain and through suffering. And I think that's one of the reasons God allows us to go through suffering. Because if we didn't have suffering, we would all think that we're mature Christians. Because all of you look mature when God has given you what you want. But God, through pain and discipline, will peel away that and show us what's really inside and what needs to be worked on. And so that doesn't sound fun. We don't like it, but Hebrews reminds us what, why God is doing this. And in verse 5, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He's going to quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And he'll begin by saying this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? I think it's interesting. Hebrews assumes that the readers of Hebrews know their Bible. Is that a fair assumption of all Christians? I think it is, because when you realize that this is God's word and that God has spoken to us and that it gives us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, there's an assumption that a Christian who truly believes that this is God's word will read God's word and seek to know God's word. And so he begins by saying, do you not remember? 
I mean, surely you remember your parents teaching you this. You remember it being taught in the synagogue. Do you not remember? And then he quotes Proverbs. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. He's trying to put our suffering into perspective. Sometimes when we're suffering, we can get angry with God. And we can think that God must be hateful toward me. God despises me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't even exist. I'm walking away from God. I'm walking away from the church. I'm walking away from all of this. And he's trying to put this into perspective. No, no, God, you're suffering. God is not treating you poorly. He's not ignoring you. He's treating you as a son. He's doing this out of love. He's not punishing you. He's not trying to get retribution on you. In fact, I want you to hear this, friends. When God disciplines us, when he brings pain into our life, even, when, even as a result of our sin, is God simply extracting punishment and payment for that sin? Careful, he's not. It's not simply punitive. When and where were our sins punished? At the cross, Colossians chapter 2. What do we read there in verse, 10, in, uh, verse 14 and 15, rather? It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, okay, that's us before Christ, we're completely dead. There's nothing we can do to merit any kind of favor with God. While in that state, he says, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There's nothing God won't forgive. But then look what he says. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to his cross. This whole rap sheet that everyone has before God of all the bad things we've ever done, it was nailed to the cross. So the punishment for our sins is not what is in view here. When we go through pain as a result of sin or something else, it's actually the loving actions of a father toward us. He's trying to shape us. In fact, he uses the term discipline here. This particular Greek word has the idea of discipline, and it encompasses all that a parent would do to produce a healthy, vibrant child, okay? It involves uh, certainly instruction. In fact, the word itself involved primarily instruction, but because of the way it was used to en encompass all that a parent would do for their child, it also included the term discipline, physical pain that a parent would inflict upon a child to teach them that this, what you're doing right here is sinful, and if you keep doing it, it's going to continue to produce pain in your life. And so I'm gonna give you a temporary pain so that you can avoid a long-lasting pain in destroying your life. And so God is disciplining us. He's, the term he uses is, the, is what a parent would do for a child, and then he, the author of Hebrews addresses his audience saying this is what God does for you. You know what that means? All of us are children in God's eyes. All of us, I don't care if you're 105. Is God still going to train you? Is God going to discipline you? Is God going to continue to shape you more and more like Jesus? None of us graduate from this. You may be more mature than others or more mature than where you were, but none of us graduate from God doing his perfect work in our life. And he does this out of love. He says that he does this for us because we are his sons. That when God inflicts pain upon us intentionally, and again, the bad things that happen in our life, it's not just simply Satan at work. Oh, Satan's busy. Satan can't do anything God doesn't let him. Read Job, okay? Satan's not busy. God is busy. God is active in that pain that's in your life right now, and he's bringing pain in your life like a loving parent would for their child. Have you all realized, by the way, that when you raise up, you birth this beautiful little child, that you have birthed a child who's a little bundle of sin, you know, I, in sin, I, I was formed in sin, iniquity. 
right? It's within us. Foolishness, sinfulness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod will drive it from him. These children are born willful, disobedient, and in rebellion against God. They're born this way. And if you realize that you can't just love your child into becoming a godly child, I mean, there's, there's parents who really believe that you can. Just love them and talk to them, and they're, they're going to be great kids. Have you ever been to an airport before? Does that work? No, friends, we see that not working all over the place. But a parent instead says, you know what? I have a plan for you that you're going to be a well-developed child, like my parents did with me. They didn't want me to be a horrible child. And so they, they even used healthy, godly discipline. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. To spare the rod means I really don't want to see my child sad. I, I just don't like to see him cry. It makes me feel so bad. They're going to think I hate them. They're going to think I dislike them. I'm going to teach them violence. You know? And we have these ideas in our head, but what does God say? He who spares it refuses to use it because it makes us feel bad. How do they truly feel about their child's future? He hates them. It means we don't care about what they become. I'm more concerned, concerned about their temporary happiness right now than I am about what they'll become later. So, friends, when we spare the rod because we're concerned, we say we're concerned about our child, let's, let's be honest with ourselves, we spare the rod because we're concerned about us. I don't like how disciplining my child makes me feel, so I won't do it. Okay? God is a biblical parent. God doesn't much care that temporarily we have tears. Now, now he cares. Okay, the Bible even says he saves our tears in a bottle. But God prioritizes, rather, our, our holiness over our happiness. He'll do that every time. In our text, discipline includes difficult things that most of us don't like. It includes terms like reproves and he chastises. Reproves is a word that means to prove wrong. Somebody is showing you that what you're doing isn't right. It's not the right way. None of us like to be reproved. We don't enjoy it. But I'm going to tell you this. How you respond to a biblical reproof, a loving reproof, really indicates a lot about your maturity whether or not you're a humble or a proud person. It may even indicate, you know, whether or not you're a converted person. Reproved people see value in being confronted and, re and proved wrong. If I'm living a sinful life, uh, open season here, friends, don't be mean about it, but if I'm living in sin, I'm doing something wrong or I'm unintentionally hurting someone or something, I want you to tell me about it. Not in a business meeting. Preferably don't raise your hand right now and announce it to the world on a live stream, you know, but come to me privately and talk to me. I'm gonna appreciate that. But friends, that's what humility is. It recognizes none of us are perfect. That's why God gives us a, a community of people to help one another. Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother overtaken in a trespass, he's stuck in sin. Ignore it. No, that's not what it says. It says, it says you who are spiritual, you're spiritually minded, spiritually motivated, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness and fear, lest you be tempted. That's what God intends for us, this loving rebuke. Psalm 141.5 David says, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. If ever there was a verse that should be inscribed on a child's paddle, it's this one right here. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. And it really is. He goes on, he says, let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head and let my, not my head refuse it. When somebody reproves me, when, even in this particular case, let a, let a righteous man strike me. When, when, there's, when there's pain inflicted, when I'm receiving discipline or when somebody is reproving me, showing where I'm, where I'm wrong, he says, let me not refuse it. 
He says, it is oil for my head. This is descriptive of a time you would put oil, olive oil, not motor oil, you know, on somebody's head uh, if you were anointing them for king, uh, to be a king or some other divine purpose. You're setting them apart. You're setting them aside. This oil is a picture of the divine blessing upon you. It's a picture of the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so when somebody takes time to rebuke, to reprove, or in this particular case, he said, the strike of a righteous man. You know, he says, these things, when they're done with godly intent and motivation, he says, let me not refuse it. Don't just try to avoid those circumstances. Instead, appreciate what they're doing for you. They are bringing you to a place where God can divinely work through you and you can enjoy and experience the blessing of God. Our text also uses the term chastises. Now, this is one of the cases where I think the ESV is just too soft. I like the New American Standard, what it says. Uh, the American Standard renders this verse this way. He scourges every son whom he receives. And I'll tell you why I think scourges is the better word. Uh, the Greek word for whip is mastiks. This is the word mastigao, okay? It, it, just like in the English, you can have a noun that is a whip, but you can also use the word whip as a verb, can't you? To whip. That is the, what, what is in mind here. Whom the Lord loves, he whips. He whips every son whom he receives. That's not a fun term. That does not play well with modern culture, Facebook, and modern uh, psychology. Because psychology always values the body over the soul. We always think that which harms the body must be the worst thing for you. In modern culture and psychology, they will always sacrifice the spirit for the body because the body is what's most important because that's what connects us to this earth. What's most important to God? Your body is your soul. And God will always sacrifice your body for your soul. He will always sacrifice your body and bring in physical pain at times, difficulty, suffering, and even death at times because it's your soul that God has in mind, that which connects you to the world to come. And so priority-wise, we've got to allow God to scourge us, to whip us. And God says, don't take this whipping wrongly. Don't misunderstand my motive and my intention for it. And he gives us two ways that we respond wrongly to the pain that God brings in. He says, we can regard it lightly or grow weary within it. To, take light, to regard lightly the whipping of God means that it means to treat casually, lightly, to think nothing of it, to disregard it. I'll be honest with you, that's how I regarded discipline when I was a kid. I had a, my dad had a nickname for me as a child. He called me Lead Bottom. Just sharing that with you. And the reason is he felt like he could, he could discipline me with a chunk of rebar, and I just would not move. It would not change my, what I did. I was a hard-headed kid, if you can imagine. And so he would just, I mean, he was one step away from using a taser. I mean, they were out of options here. That's hyperbole, by the way. My parents were not abusive, okay? So, but that's just, that's how I was. And then the, that's one bad way of responding to a scourging, the, the pain that, that is inflicted by an authority upon our life. The other bad way is to grow weary in it. I've seen that even amongst my kids. I won't say which ones. Uh, but there were times that I would, uh, where we would discipline one of our children because they did wrong. And they would go into repent mode and they're just thinking they're the worst human on earth. They don't deserve to live. They're not fit to live. You know, we'll, we'll catch them in the room and they're packing their luggage. You know, clearly I don't belong here anymore. There's no hope. It's over. God, you hate me. That's also a wrong way to respond to reproof when somebody corrects you. I can't do anything right. It's awful. It's horrible. Life is over. 
These are both bad responses to the scourging. What are we supposed to do with the reproof of God? We're to understand it and to receive it as love because that's what it is. Verse six says, for the four, because why should I not regard lightly? Why should I not grow weary in it? For the Lord disciplines whom? The ones he loves. And it says, and chastises or scourges every son whom he receives. Everyone who truly belongs to God, he does this for every last one. And this motivation behind it is simply love. When God reproves us, when he brings pain into our life, and God does bring pain, remember Isaiah 45 says, I create light, I create darkness, I create well-being, I create calamity, difficult things in your life. He says, I am the Lord who does these things. God is responsible for both the good and the bad days. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I'm rejoicing because I know God made this day, even if it's a bad day. It's God's day. And he, therefore, he has a plan for it. Why? Because I'm his kid. He's not going to do anything bad to me. I mean, ultimately, he's not, going to, he's not going to intend my doom and my harm. He's only intending my good on the other side. And sometimes God uses pain to do that, just as a biblical parent would do for their own children. And so God loves the one that he receives. Why is that important for us to know when we're under the discipline of God? Because that's the only thing that gets us through it. But just trusting that my heavenly father cares about me and that even the pain he's bringing in my life has a purpose. There's no wasted pain in your life. Every pain has a purpose, and it's lovingly given to us. Number two, discipline is evidence that we are children of God. Look at verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. And this is kind of an odd phrase here as we read this in English. What is he talking about? The word endure, we've studied it before. It means to remain up under this pressure, not to quit, not to relent, not to give up. You know, uh, it's, and that's our knee-jerk response to pain, isn't it? You put your hand on a hot stove, you're not gonna leave it there. Have you ever put your finger in a light socket as a kid? done it, uh, you pull it away. That's our natural knee-jerk response to pain, is to just immediately avoid it. And if we're not careful, we're going to take that all the way into adult life. You get on that treadmill for the first time this January, the first time in six months you've been on that, and you're going to start walking, and you're just, after a while, you're going to think, is it worth it? And you're going to want to get off. Okay? It is, he says, it is for discipline that you endure. How do you endure it? By understanding it. Now, I got a picture here I want to show to you and see if you can recognize what this is. This is 1818 when this thing was first built and started. It was uh, used in Victorian England prisons. And it was a device created to break the will of the bad guys, the, the guys who are criminals. You know what it was called? It's called the treadmill. It is still breaking the will to live of people to this day. Now, they did it because they were being punished. Why do you get on and stay on that treadmill of yours? You endure, it is for discipline that you endure. You understand it's doing something good. I hate this thing, I'm tired of walking, uh-oh, it's going uphill now, I'm even more tired, it's speeding up, it's speeding up, is it ever gonna slow down? And you start, but you stay on it. You don't just hit the stop button and get off. Why do you stay on those torture devices? It's because you know it's producing something good in you. The pain that you're feeling right now is producing health in your body. It's helping your bones, it's helping your joints, it's helping your muscles and ligaments and all those other terms we forgot in biology. It's helping all those things. And so you stay on and you endure the pain because you know on the other side it's doing some good. 
I think that's what the Bible wants us to recognize. It is for discipline that you endure. Understand what God is doing through that discipline so that on the other side of that pain, you can grow through it and God doesn't have to bring you through that again. Much better to learn what God wanted us to learn the first time we went through pain than to have to do it over and over. Verse seven says, God is treating you as sons. This is the kind of a thing that a father would do for his child. He says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He feels it's inconceivable that a father who says he loves his kids would never discipline their children. What father is there that would do that? There's no father. If you really love your kids, you care more about who they'll become and not just their personal temporary happiness right now. What father is there? And so when God disciplines, it's always for our good. And it's evidence that he's our father. Look at verse eight. If you are left without discipline, he says, in which all have participated. I don't need to do a Greek word study on all, do I? I mean, we understand the word all. It's everybody who claims to be a Christian, we all go through the discipline of God. There's nobody, not even one child of God, if you're truly God's child, who does not go through discipline He says, if we are left without discipline, you are then illegitimate children and not sons. What's an illegitimate child? It's a child who does not bear the DNA of the father. They're illegitimate. They don't belong to him. They're not his DNA. As as spiritual children, there's a sense in which if we don't receive the discipline of God, it's because we're not his. We've not been regenerated, regened, Given the DNA of God, we don't, we don't look like our father because we don't have his bloodline. He says, if you don't receive discipline, it's evidence of the fact that you're, you're not a child of God. If you can just willfully sin and sin and sin and seemingly God does nothing about it, friends, let me tell you, that's a far more terrifying prospect than the discipline of God. Because you may get away with sin for now, but are you gonna get away with sin forever? No. If you're not a child of God receiving discipline of God for the bad things you're doing... It means we're illegitimate, that we're going to spend eternity away from God. We're the neighbor kid. We don't actually belong to him. You see, God doesn't spank the neighbor kids. Neither did my mom and dad. Now, my dad would use all kinds of implements, you know, for my instruction and my righteousness. I mean, there was a black paddle, I've told you about it, spray-painted black to strike fear in the heart of children, wrapped with electrical tape around the handle so he got a really good grip. Um, He used that. We would hide it, but then we just discovered that if we hid that, the belt would come out. And if the belt wasn't there, he would use his hand, you know, and they were just, whatever. He he was instructing us with, with whatever he had available because he cared about us, and he only did that for us. There was a time as a kid once, and I could give you one of 100 stories of my wayward, you know, backslidden years away from Christ as a child, and, but there was one time where the first house that I really remember growing up in was actually my grandfather's house. He had a secondary house and we just lived in it. And the neat thing about that was my grandfather would collect all these cars, which is where my dad got it. And he had all these cars just sitting out in the weeds. And one day my buddy and I, Steve, uh, Steve Broom, we were hanging out at the house. We were bored, didn't know what to do. And we discovered my grandfather had old campers sitting around. What do you do if there's an old camper? A kid wants to know what's inside a camper. I'd never been in one before. So we investigate. And I begin to look through just all the junk that is left over in this camper, and we discover in some of the drawers there's coins. Hmm. We start looking under the couch cushions. There's more coins. We look in the glove box, and in the dash, there's more coins. I mean, I was Sir Walter Raleigh finding El Dorado here, and we're just running our fingers through these coins, and Steve and I, we decided that day to ransack and loot every car on my dad's property. 
And so we're digging through and we're collecting all this money that we found. And we, at the end of the day, we split the hall between us. And we each went home with probably $40 in change, which back then was pretty sizable. A kid could do a lot with that. And me not being a very intelligent child, next time my mom went to the local Kmart, remember Kmart? We went to the Kmart and I decided I'm going to buy some action figures for myself. Not even dawning on me that my mom is going to see this young, very unemployed child somehow buying action figures and ask me where I got the money, at which point I, you know, I sang like a canary. I told her everything I did. And you know what she did? She took that money away. She didn't let me buy those action figures. And she made me return the money. And then when I got home, I got disciplined. Do you know who didn't get disciplined? Steve Broom. He got no discipline. He got to keep the money. Now, do you think I'm resentful that my parents disciplined me, took away that, and didn't let me live a life of crime? You know, because of their discipline, I no longer loot cars for change. Aren't you happy? Can you, can you imagine reading in the newspaper, local area pastor looting cars for change? I wouldn't have my career very long. So I'm grateful that my parents did this for me. I don't know what ever happened to Steve. You know, I have no idea what happened to that brother today, but I do know what happened to me, that my parents kept me from a life of sin and crime because they cared about me. And verse 9 appeals to this. He says, besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and what was the response? You hated them? No, he says, we respected them. That's always the fear of parents when you use discipline. Oh, I don't want my child to hate me. I don't want them to think I despise them. I don't want them to think I whatever. And, and so we refuse to use it. But what does God say is the natural result of a parent disciplining a child? Is it truly hate? Is it to teach them violence? What, is it, what do they truly receive on the other side of that discipline? He says we respected them. We learned to respect their authority. We learned to honor and obey our parents. These are good things. He says, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, we look back at us, and, we, and I've told my story. You could tell your story too, couldn't you? Those of you who had parents who, who did it right, I mean, as best as they could. Nobody had a perfect parent. But they disciplined you. Do you look back upon that discipline and say, you know what? I'm so resentful of that. Most of us, when they did it in a spirit of love and self-control, it wasn't an abusive situation. We look back at that discipline, and we, we're proud of it. We tell stories about it. Guys will one-up each other with stories. You know, my dad used a paddle. My dad used a bullwhip. My dad used a crowbar, you know. And we just, we just talk about the way that my parents laid it on us because it, ultimately, what does it communicate? That they care about us. They care about what I become. He says, we respected our earthly parents. How much more that when our father of, uh, of, uh, father of the spirits, okay, when he disciplines us, well, are you going to resent God for that? He says, no, our, our natural response to be that should, should be to respect him, to obey him. And if when God brings pain into our life, and we, that isn't our response to God, that is also an indicator of whether or not we belong to him. One of the evidences that we're a child of God is that when God disciplines us, our first response is not to run away from God, it's to respect God for it. And so that's an evidence that you're a child of God. How do you respond when God brings pain into your life? Do you run away from God? Do you abandon church? Do you abandon your Bible? Do you stop praying? Do you stop giving? Do you stop serving? Do you resent God and, and blaspheme him, which means to speak evil against God for what he's done? That's the response of one of Satan's children. It really is. It's not God's response of his children. Now, we may suffer. We may struggle. We may question God. God, why? But in the end, when we understand what God is doing, friends, we learn to respect God. We learn to obey God. 
It's one of the evidences that we're his. Number three, discipline is for a purpose. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Our parents, they disciplined us according to their standards. Right, wrong, indifferent, doesn't matter what they did. God, he says, disciplines us according to his perfect law, according to his perfect standard of righteousness. And his end goal is what for us? He disciplines us that we may what? Share in his holiness. And we need that holiness. The Bible says without holiness, none may see God. And so it's good that God is producing this holiness within us to make us like himself, that God is committed to making us like him. This word holiness, it's not a word that we like to talk about, but it means that we have been cleansed and set apart for a divine purpose, for a holy purpose. Now, we appreciate holiness in certain respects of life, don't we? You're about to go out to eat in a few minutes, if you're good, okay? You're about to go out to eat, and when you do, your waitress is gonna bring you food, how many of you, when your waitress brings you your food, wants to see the waitress go, oh, there's a fork on the floor. I forgot to bring him a fork. I'm just gonna give him here this fork that I found on the floor and just, here you go, sir, here's a fork. It's still got old chicken parmesan, you know, in between the tines, crusted up in there. Somebody else, it's been in somebody else's mouth. It's been on the floor. Are you gonna put that in your mouth? Not unless you're like two. You know, they put everything in their mouth. You know, you're not gonna do that. You say, no, this, this, this device here, I want it purified. I want it cleansed. I want it rinsed. I want it to go through a sanitizer. I want you to put it under like 700 degree heat, you know, to cleanse this thing. And then I want you to protect it. I want you to wrap it up in a napkin and give it to me in an unsullied condition. That's what holiness is, that we have been cleansed and set apart for God's purposes. That is God's primary intention for us on earth is that we may share in his holiness. And that, yes, that has a, a future sense in which we will share in his holiness for eternity, but that holiness God wants us to begin right now. He says, be holy, not as the world is holy, be holy as Facebook says is holy, but be holy as I'm holy. That's God's intention for our life. God's goal for us is to be like him, not to give us a guided tour on all this world has to offer. That we are set apart for him. Now, God's work in our lives in his discipline is always unto this end. It's to make us a holy people. And we can either understand what God is doing and understand that I'm his child and that God is doing this out of love and he's trying to produce holiness in me. And in the end, I'm gonna dwell with him and we will accept and receive that instruction and that maturity or we can resist it and push back on it. And we can refuse to allow God to use us to mature us and to grow us up. I mean, obviously such were some of the Hebrews here. If you go back to chapter five and verse 12, he says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. He says, there's some of you hearing this message and you're like, man, can't we just go to the basic stuff? You know, I don't wanna hear all of this stuff. I don't wanna mature, I don't wanna grow up. Clearly, by this time, these Hebrews have been going to church for a long time. They've been Christians for a long time, and yet they're still not teaching others. They've been Christians for a long time, long enough in the writer's mind that they should be in the place now where they're not just taking from people like a baby in the bottle. Give me my food. Instead, now they're providing food for others. That's what maturity does. I mean, none of us want an 18-year-old son that we're still putting food in their mouth, making airplane noises. I mean, that's, that's depressing. You want your child to grow up to the place where they're mature. They can feed themselves. They can take care of themselves. Furthermore, you have hopes 
that when we get older, if it requires that they can also now take care of us. That's what maturity does. We get to the place where we're taking care of other people. Hebrews, some of them were slow to do that. They weren't receiving from this discipline what they were supposed to. They didn't want the deeper things of God's word. Just tell me how I can feel good. Tell me how I can know I'm going to heaven. That's only all I want to hear. Just give me the basic principles of the oracles of God, God's word. Just give me the basic stuff. Give me the milk. But God's intention is that we would all grow to a place of maturity. He says in verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And the way this is constructed in the Greek, the idea is this is an insignificant thought. It was a, it was a silly, foolish, immature way to think. At the time, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That we have a, a bad way that we view pain, like I should never go through pain, like it's God's strange work, that I should never have to do it, never have to go through this pain. He says, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I'm not saying you have to enjoy pain. There's none of us, you know, who want to be diagnosed with heart disease. None of us wants our mate to leave or a kid to bow up on us. None of us wants to get diagnosed with cancer. I, don't, I think that's sick. We don't, wanna, we don't wanna pray for that. But at the same time, when God brings it into our life and we endure it and we receive it as coming from God, so therefore God must have a purpose in it, he says that we can grow through this and on the other side have a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now I think again, this has both a future sense and, a, and an immediate sense in which we receive. There's a future sense that God is treating us as one of his children and we are going to be born again and spend eternity with him, but also there's a sense in which we right now, the fruit of righteousness is a sense of peace that reigns in our hearts. Galatians 5, one of the evidences of that the spirit of God is in you, the fruit of the spirit, what is it? Love, joy, peace. And that peace doesn't mean that you're a happy person when things are peaceful. It means that when things are raging all around you, you can still be at peace. How can a person be at peace when life is falling apart? It's because you know that God holds the, the world in his hands. He holds your life in his hands. Even the future, it's in his hands. When you understand the sovereignty of God, you can be at peace in all circumstances. You can theoretically be Jesus at the bottom of a boat sleeping while there's a storm raging about you. And when he gets up, he looks at everybody who's freaking out in the storm and says what? Oh, you have little faith. And so God's purpose in this is to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In 2006, I remember reading about, I don't know if you know, but have heard of the pastor John Piper, used to pastor Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, wrote a famous book called Desiring God. And in 2006, he indicated that he had been diagnosed with cancer, and all the world was very concerned and curious, how will this man whose whole focus is desiring God, how is he gonna respond to pain? And you know what he said? It always amazed me. He says, pray for me, not that I'll get out of the pain, pray for me, not that I'm just gonna get healed right away. His singular prayer request was this, pray that I might receive the full sanctifying benefit of my cancer. Did you pray that? Oh no, brother, Wednesday night we're praying here. Oh, pray for me, we'll get healed right away. There'll be no pain, everything will be fine. All the doctor bills get paid. The rest of that I'm not so concerned about. I just wanna get out of the pain. But Piper's prayer was so insightful. Pray that I'll receive the full sanctifying benefit from my cancer. In fact, this man later wrote a book, which you can download for free, by the way, on a PDF online, called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't Waste Your Cancer. I recommend if you have cancer today, go home and download that and read that book today. It's just a little booklet. It won't take you much time at all. Don't Waste Your Cancer. And in that book, he said, cancer doesn't win if we die. 
He says, cancer wins if we fail to cherish Christ. If cancer causes you not to be steadfast, if cancer causes you to change, if cancer causes you to pull back from God and pull back from church, pull back from your Bible, pull away from prayer, you stop giving, you stop serving because you're bitter and angry and resentful against God, you have not received the full sanctifying benefit of that cancer. And you have allowed cancer to defeat you, even if you survive it. Like I said, God's goal for us, friends, is not to give us a guide tour on all this world has to offer. It's not about experiencing this world. It's not about living a fulfilled life. God's intention for us is holiness, to pry our fingers off of this world, and even through pain, to bring us to a place where we don't desire to be here anymore. We desire to be with him. Isn't that what Paul said? Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a good thing. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In other words, I long to be in heaven. All this pain and difficulty and suffering and sin around me, I don't, I don't want to be here so much anymore. I want to be with God, but I'm not suicidal. I recognize that God has a purpose for my being alive right now, and it's not just to experience this world to its fullest. He says, I am here because it's necessary for your sake. The purpose of my life now is to worship God through serving other people. Can you say that is your response to pain today? That you're allowing God to let it have the full sanctifying work in your heart, that it's causing you to increasingly become dissatisfied this world and to long for the next. That's what God wants pain to do. And that you eventually come to the place of, God has me here amidst this pain for a reason. It's to worship God through the serving of other people. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning as we have studied Hebrews. God, this is a tough passage. Studying pain and holiness, all of us like Isaiah, we may be living a godly life by human standards, and yet when we come face to face with what real holiness is, like Isaiah, we're, we're like, woe unto me, I'm unclean. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and God, we become just confronted with our own sin. And we can become discouraged. There may be some who are today here, God, who are discouraged because of the suffering that you are allowing them to go through here today. That you are allowing them as one of your children to endure pain and suffering. It may be disciplinary. It may just be part of training. That you're trying to prune us and, and, and pry our fingers off of this world. God, I pray that you would help them to be steadfast. Help them to seek you in the midst of that pain that when they're hurt and sick, that they would go to the great physician and not to depart from him. God, show us that in the end, all of the pain that's in our life is love-motivated, that your intention is to draw us near to you, to bring us to a place where we respect you, we obey you, and we live in, in as best as we can do, perpetual holiness, that we are living like you, that we represent you well here on earth, and in so doing, enjoy this world as fully as one, as one Christian can. God, I pray for any who doesn't know Christ today, who is suffering through this world and has, has no point of reference for it, seemingly no understanding of it. They're just living life and resentful that they're hurting. God, I pray that you would show them today the Christ who came, who died in their place for their sins, who is willing to take their sin upon himself at the cross and offer them eternal life. Lord, would you grant them to them today? We ask this in Christ's name. 
From all of us here at Unity, we just want to say thanks for spending time with us today. If you'd like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, let us give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people.